I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing the diary of a country priest, the final two chapters, chapter seven and eight. And as you can no doubt tell, I once again am not David Kern. Nor am I. Right. It's Sean and I holding down the fort. Poor David is still feeling under the weather. He has not disappeared, though. We're not hiding anything. He hasn't. Right. That's right. Yeah. I just I give you my word that there is nothing sinister going on. It's <laughs> just as simple as he's sick. So, well, and, uh, and yeah. by now, you know that he's also been working really hard on things like uh, the Close Reads Conference in Atlanta. Yes, indeed. He the has. final details for that hammered out from his deathbed yes that's right so we really can't we can't fault him he's been he's been working so hard um man if he dies we're gonna feel so bad (laughs) he's actually fine Uh, he's on the that's true yes um so yeah that's right sean tell us about the closed reads retreat coming up in this august you mean the one in Atlanta? yeah that's the one i mean the first weekend of august that's right we're gonna get together with 150 of our closest friends. That's right. Yes. And talk about good old Southern literature. I can't wait. This is going to be see some so Shakespeare. exciting. Yeah, that's I right. Really, I really can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Uh, yeah. We have like the best weekend planned for all of you who can make it. Uh, we're going to be getting together actually at Tim's church. Um, and I am I really am hoping, fingers crossed, that little Arden and Macintosh, uh, the youngest member of the Close Reads team, is able to join us uh, along with Galen. I think Galen. he's all but promised that that's going to happen. I really believe it's going to happen. Um, yeah. And uh, and we're going to go see a Shakespeare show uh, at the local restaurant. I hear it's a lot of fun. Uh, and yeah, get a the, meal the together. The Atlanta Shakespeare Tavern is really great. They've got a great standing company. Uh, and the production is the Reduced Shakespeare Company's Complete Works of William Shakespeare parentheses abridged amazing <laughs> uh, lady redundant it is, woman it is a it is a rollicking tour through the canon uh with some comedy with some feels it's great i can't wait i'm so looking forward to oh, that yeah. uh and then we'll be reading some southern literature some some short stories yeah. uh tell us you had a very specific pick for this sean tell us a little bit about this oh author. yeah uh, I wanted to make sure that the fiction of Caroline Gordon was represented because uh, the theme of the conference is home and place. Mm-hmm. And uh, Caroline Gordon was a really big deal in the middle of the 20th century as a Southern author. Uh, she's been semi-forgotten now, which I think is uh, a shame. She played the role sort of a literary mentor to Flannery O'Connor uh, and she was married to Alan Tate, uh, who was a member of the fugitive poets or the Southern agrarian poets who are all very much concerned with uh, uh, themes and issues of of place, especially as post-bellum Southerners. I'm really yeah, excited she's, about she's it. Great. I'm excited. You know, we got... Um a particular comment, a little bit of feedback on this novel, on Diary of a Country Priest, from someone who said, I'm a Protestant, I'm kind of wrestling through, uh, reading so many novels from a Catholic perspective here, um, and along yeah. with Loris, which we read, which was Orthodox. And um, and so I would say, as far as great Protestant novels, if you're looking for novels through the lens of faith, they are harder to find. And Southern Lit is, I think, your best bet in American yeah, letters. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll be wrestling with that. As you said, the theme is home, place, and faith. Um, because we we recognize as we're fighting for an American identity over the decades of, uh, of our nation, that's always been the question, right? The great American novel, uh, because right. so many other Western cultures have their, their definitive, uh, literary voices. Um, and, and it's been harder, I think, for the American culture to find that partly because we're so big, we're so vast. Um, but the regional novel has played a huge role in that. And that's particularly true in the South. So um, go ahead. 
Oh, I'm excited to, speaking of that, I'm excited about the potential of future close reads on the road events. Uh, I know. There are, there are so many regions with so much literary, uh, rich literary heritage. Yep. The Northwest, the Southwest, New England, Old England. <laughs> Old England, that's great. We'll yep. see. Yep. Yeah. Well, anyway, sign up, reserve your spot. We can only take 150 people because of space limitations, and it's going to fill up pretty quickly. I think we're about a a quarter to a third of the way there already. So reserve yeah. your spot as soon as you can. Um, we can't wait to see you that first week of August. Um, okay, so let's talk about Diary of a Country Priest, these final two chapters. Sean, yeah. off the air, I asked you, what would you like to talk about today? And you said, let's talk about, <laughs> and I quote, Let's talk about all of it, the whole thing, end quote. Now, I really want to do that. I want to make you happy. We're establishing ourselves yeah. as a team. Come on now. <laughs> um, but I have no so idea what you mean by that. So oh, uh, I'm going to yeah. need you I was hoping to clarify. And maybe to... I was hoping that yeah. you would sort of do that for me. Oh. You just tell me what I meant. <laughs> and... Uh, and it would sound great and I'd agree with you. Right. Well, I I don't know if um if you have an answer to that or if we want just want to leave this as banter. <laughs> um but I'm curious. Um and I the reason I asked that is because this is a novel that I think is hmm, rewards completion like every novel. You know, novels are made to be read all the way through, yeah. you know, for more yeah, literary right. tips and tricks. Tune uh -huh. in next um, Start at the beginning right. and go to the end. Yeah. Um, but I do think that this is a novel that rewards some zooming out, right? And looking at it as a yes. whole and not just in its right. parts. And so was there something specifically you were getting at with that comment? Uh, partly, it is It is a, well, it's a diary. I, and we are in at the beginning of this exercise in keeping a diary that the priest takes up. Uh, it's also, uh, and we we come to the end of that of that exercise. Uh, and so it is in itself a kind of uh, literary undertaking of the priest that is concluded uh, with his death at the end of the novel. And that's worth taking stock of you know, what came of that. Uh, and we also get this episode or period in his life, his, his priesthood and his, uh, his tenure as, as this country priest is also summed up in the novel. It's not a novel that begins or ends in what well, maybe it, it ends as all lives do in medias race, right. In the, in the midst of things, but, uh, it begins very much a, kind of a threshold in his own life, doubly so because he's been installed as this new parish priest and, <laughs> uh, and has begun to die though. He does not know it until the last few pages of the novel. Mm, yeah. Yeah. We are in a sense given a diary, not of his whole life chronologically from beginning to end, but a diary of his ministry as a priest. Right. Yeah. Again, the title of this novel is so simple and yet it's exactly appropriate. Right. It is a diary mm -hmm. of a country priest and a diary of a country priesthood. Uh, and yeah, so we see we see his life coming to an end. Right. That's not it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a medical professional to see where that <laughs> where this novel is going. I don't know. If maybe you've read a Russian yeah. novel or two, you yeah. can sort of see it coming. Yeah. Um, I doubt if we had a lot of readers who are surprised by the right. end of this novel. Um, and yet it still has this emotional weight, this poignancy to it. Uh, this, it's a, it's a very powerful picture of death. Um, why, why does it still have that weight of emotion and poignancy? Uh, even though the foreshadowing is so thick that we know it's <laughs> coming. Uh, I think, well, it's because we are, we are experiencing it through the eyes of of the man who's learning of his death mm. in real time. I think that helps a lot. So we we strongly anticipate uh, that he's going to die in the end, probably. And even even if you went into it knowing that that's how the novel ended, uh, you still get to live through 
the priest's own suspicions. And and maybe Bernanos is really clever there too. He allows the priest to be suspicious that perhaps he has a fatal illness and then to be, to talk himself out of thinking that way. And then he prepares himself once again to receive really bad news or a fatal prognosis when he visits this doctor, the specialist. And then the doctor lies to him initially. And so the Bernardos helps shake us out of our certainty, I think, by giving us that little roller coaster. Uh, and then we live through uh, the priest's own thoughts and feelings as he discovers he is, in fact, dying and uh, reflects on that reality and comes to terms with that reality. Hmm. I think that that's that's what gives it its weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the the part of the novel that's the most in my at least in my interpretation, the most definitively and strategically structured. Um, we finally yeah. get to this part that's very, very carefully crafted. Right. And it's crafted according to a group of threes, which, you know, that's always significant in a in a spiritual novel, right? Um, yeah. um it has three encounters, the doctor, the ex-priest, and the ex-priest's live-in lover. Um, And so I want to talk about about these three encounters and their significance and maybe some of the content of their conversations and and how they might prepare our priest for death um, and leave something, give something to us as readers. Um, there mm-hmm. are three who are, they're the three people of the novel who are really not uh, Catholic, right? Yeah. Unless, you know, we could debate that with our ex-priest, though. You know, I don't know. <laughs> um, right. But what's something that particularly stands out to you about these three encounters? And then maybe you want to talk about them one by one, Sean, or do you have any sure. like, kind of yeah. overall, um, you know, bird's eye view comments to make? Uh I think it's structurally, I think it's worth noticing that they sort of parallel the parish encounters he's had. Uh, he has maybe, maybe even if you count, uh, what's his name? The, uh, the soldier. Oh yeah. What is his name? Oh, I liked him so much. Olivier. Olivier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you count him maybe as, maybe even as a kind of transitional figure. He's in the country, but he's not exactly of the country. He's, well, he's a foreign, he's a foreign legionnaire anyway, but he, he does not live the, the country life all the time. But he has a number of tense or poignant encounters with parishioners in the first half of the book or the first three quarters of the book even. Then he has that encounter with Olivier and and then he leaves his parish and he has uh, similar encounters. In fact, he even draws connections between them uh, at certain points. He, I think it's the doctor that he compares to uh, the governess uh, in, That's right. in carrying, carrying a kind of sadness or suffering that can't be shared. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even the priest is seeing these sort of parallels. He has he has his flock in his parish, uh, and then he's encountering with their counterparts out in the world. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, right. I forgot about Olivier when we first started talking because he hadn't met him yet by the time that we ended our last recording. Right. right. I found it. I found that whole encounter like very moving. Because it enabled me to see the priest as like a young man. Yeah. Um, and the kind of young man he would be if he wasn't a priest. Mm-hmm. And and I, I pictured myself reading it if I if I wasn't a person of faith and I would have wanted that life for him. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, too bad that he couldn't just Yeah, just be a yeah. guy. Right? right. Um, and have friends and have a motorcycle and <laughs> um and like laugh and joke and and I 
I was like very moved by that. And it, it brought a, I think some fruitful reflection for me in thinking about, um, I, I tend to immerse myself in, in novels that come from a perspective of faith, obviously from my own faith. And right. then in general, when I, when I read those novels, there's always these moments when I think to myself, what would I think of this? If I, if I wasn't a person of faith, what would I think of this? If I thought the priest, would I think the priest was wasting his life? Would I think that the priest was, um, had foolishly and pridefully kept his illness inside when he could have caught it earlier and lived a fruitful life? Um, and, uh, and you know, even along the way, I started thinking, you know, what I think, I wish that the priest could have married and had children. He seemed like he would have been a good, a gentle father and a loving and understanding mm-hmm. husband, right? And so I like it's those moments in novels like this that complicate the question of his vocation, uh, right. that, um, and that raise these conflicts inherent in the priestly life. You are living a life that. He is, he's living a life that keeps him from, uh, from many of the human experiences that you and I have. And, and that there is a grief in that, that even if you mm-hmm. are a person of faith, even if you are Catholic, you still, we still ought to feel that on behalf of this character, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and I think the, the priest has to deal with that himself. Hmm. Uh, he, he thinks in terms of, the the afternoon with Olivier giving him a a taste of a kind of youth that he never lived and never would live uh and then he sees it in even starker contrast when he realizes he's dying right and sums that up or uses that as uh a symbol of the entirety of the life that he thought he might live that he will no longer no longer have a chance to live yeah yeah, no, I think that's right. All right. So, what about the doctor? What stands out to you from his diagnosis conversation? Uh, the biggest part was well, it's great. I love the drama of of the scene and the way that Bernardo sort of separates it into two scenes. Really, where there's the the initial encounter. There's one one really sign that there's something else going on inside of the doctor. Uh, like he, he throws the, the doll, uh, across the room or something. And, but then he, he gives a fairly cheery prognosis and then ushers him out you know, pretty quickly. Uh, and then the, the priest walks in on him <laughs> shooting up morphine and, uh, and immediately, right there again, uh, there's this sort of shared weakness. Uh, the he has he's already been moved by the weakness of the priest, and uh, his first instinct seems to have been a sh- shallow kind of pity, the kind of pity that moves you to lie to people. Uh, but then they're connected in this double understanding of weakness when the priest sees him doping himself. And at one point, the priest even says that there, we were prisoners to one another uh, in this, in this moment. Uh, And then like so many others before he divulges more to the priest than uh, maybe it's probably safe to assume than he has divulged to anyone else, uh, including his thoughts of suicide, his own, uh, fatal prognosis and yeah I think it's uh, it's the first as you say unchurched entirely unchurched person that the priest uh, we see the priest have an encounter with and uh, he's he too in his way is moved by the priest's suffering and weakness and finally comes around to the more noble kind of pity or maybe pity is not even the right word at that point uh, and tells him the truth that he is in fact dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's that's my that's my read. He's a, the doctor's a complicated mm-hmm. guy. Do you get the sense uh, that there's more going on there? It's a good question, Sean. Because the back of the book, 
specifically mentions the doctor. Um, yeah. My book um, comes from, is it DeCapo Press? Yep. Yeah. Um, the Bitterness of yeah. and Madame it just, La Comtesse. Yes. The Arrogance of Dr. Laville. Yeah. And I, I had, you know, obviously read the back of the book before I read the book. And I was surprised. I didn't pick up on arrogance, um, which could just be my failing, like my failure as a reader to catch what the author intended. That has happened many right. a time. Like I could just not have <laughs> caught it. Right. But I yeah. kept waiting for a moment that felt like pride. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe the pride is that he is, is he, he lies to his patients, like in, in some kind of attempt, as you said, some kind of weak pity, which is a meaningless pity, right? He, he hides the truth from them, uh, and does them that disservice, therefore playing God. Um, and that is arrogant. Um, but he does go ahead. Well, uh, just to prove your point, I think now that you say that he does, he mentions the other specialist he might have sent him to, and he does pride himself that his his fictions are believable. Hmm. Like you won't, because uh, he says that the other fellow, you would have seen through him pretty quickly. Right. He would have given you the same the same sort of runaround, but you would have you would have seen through it. So maybe there's some pride there in in believing that he lies to his patients, but he lies to them uh, better more, than more the other guy, more right. successfully. Right. Yeah. Um, and then he, when he does tell him the truth, it's because the priest surprises him in his weakness. Um, and yeah. and it, it was interesting to me to think of pride as being a course in for, um, for addiction. Right. Um, yeah. And because usually I think of that in different terms. So at, at that calling him arrogant wasn't necessarily the vice that I picked up from this doctor, but right. one, once that was in my head, then I kind of traced it and it sparked some contemplation on how that vice might be manifesting in his life. Um, yeah. But I really, I thought that that it was <laughs> spoke to me so much, especially right now in this time of years where it's uh, it's Western Holy week right now. Uh, and um we've been contemplating in my church, the life of St. Mary of Egypt, uh, mm-hmm. who is a model of repentance. And the story that the story around her life uh, is that she lived a very sinful life um, of just sexual depravity uh, and came to Jerusalem for the exaltation of the cross, which is a time when ancient Christians would, and some Christians today would venerate the cross before, like in the middle of Lent. Um, it as, was the anniversary of the the establishment of the church there at the sepulcher, the Holy Sepulcher. Right. Um, but, and she goes because there's going to be men there in order to seduce them away from their repentance. Um, and, uh, but she sees a church and she wants to go inside. But when she tries to go inside, it's blocked. Like she cannot go in. Um, and it's that kind of severe mercy uh, that uh, when she thinks to herself, why can I not enter the church? Why I, I am I such a sinner? Am I so tainted by my, by my depravity that I can't even come into the doors of the church? And it's that that leads her to repentance. And, and uh, she spends the rest of her life repenting for her sins. It's a very beautiful story. If you don't know the story of St. Mary of Egypt, um, for our listeners, please look it up. It's a really incredible story. And I kept thinking about it as I was reading this section. Um, and, hmm. and, and, and thinking about the priest's ministry and how many times he is a timid man who who by nature maybe isn't very brave but because in 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 the garb of a priest as a representative of god he many times blocks people from entering the church so to speak right um yeah, and right. and provides them with a severe mercy a check uh that that he in his own he, without being a priest, would probably not have the courage uh, or the words to do um, or the authority, certainly not the authority to because he's a peasant. And and yet he does. And here's just another example of that. Um, when he catches the uh, this doctor with Dr. Laville and in, um, in this act and it 
and it does the same thing for the doctor. It, it, it gives him yeah. a gateway to speak the truth and then create a meaningful connection with our priest. I just thought it was really lovely. Yeah. This is sort of jumping ahead. Mm -hmm. So I guess these are the next two people in question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but having just said that, what do you think about his decision not to speak that way to the to the mistress? Right. Uh, yeah. So why why the why the difference? I have a couple things I noticed about all three of these encounters. Um, I've been having a conversation with one of my students. Um, her name is Miette and she's incredibly insightful. It's a French name, by the way, little Mary. Yeah. Um, and, uh, she's a very insightful young woman. She's 15, almost 16 and a dear family friend of ours. And we've been reading Plato's Republic together and, and she's in one of my classes. Um, and so we've been talking about, um, the idea of being and becoming and mm -hmm. how we are something. And yet we are also becoming something. We are fully ourselves. And yet we are also constantly changing, right? What is we've the, the telos or purpose of an acorn is to become an oak tree. And so in a sense, the acorn is already an oak tree, as long as it is not stopped along the way, right? As long as something does not come in to, um, to derail its growth. Um, and so been having this conversation with her about how does, for what reason might an acorn not become an oak tree? Why, how may we as uh, seeds of an eternal life not actually reach that eternal life? And it's, uh, if we were made to be formed into something, what kind of derails us from that formation? And it's because we're either unformed, deformed, or malformed, right? Either we don't have a chance to become it. We're not given, right, the, the, uh, the proper nourishment for that acorn to grow. It's unformed, right? And then it won't become an oak tree or it becomes deformed along the way. Um, it's something intervenes, it gets sick or uh, frost or something that, that twists it and makes it not right, deforms it. And then the other option is that it's malformed, like it's badly formed. Um, and and so each of these three people seem to be kind of one of those, right? With the prince we have, yeah. not the prince, excuse me. I don't even know why I said that, but the doctor is <laughs> like malformed, right? Um, he, he has been. If it were a Russian novel, he probably yes, would be a prince. Yeah. <laughs> He's been badly formed so that he is not right. the human that he could have been. Um, but with the second, with, is it Louis? Is it Louis, his name, right? Who doesn't become a priest or leaves the priesthood. Right. He's been right. deformed, right? He was, he did have an opportunity to become, uh, a man of God. And he, de he, he derailed himself. He became deformed and we see some stuntedness in mm -hmm. himself here in this encounter. But with her, she's just unformed. She has a good heart. Yeah. And, and he sees her purity of heart, even in, even though she has a, uh, she has not done the right things, but it is because she doesn't have it. And so it would yeah. be, he recognizes that this is a woman, young woman who needs gentleness and who has a sincere love of her neighbor and is really trying to love this poor deformed man. <laughs> and, and so I think he doesn't. I think, I think that our priest sees that it is not the problem of formation for her is not wickedness. It's, it's foolishness. It's that she has been unformed to become what she could be. And that, that yeah. therefore her, like God is very close to her. Um, and his mercy is available to her. And he shows her that, um, in hopes that it will bolster her and provide that formation towards God. I think that that is my theory on that. What do you think? Uh, I think that, I think that sounds great. Uh, I think that's a really excellent way of putting it that she is. Yeah. Her, her, all of these people are weak, uh, right, through providence or whatever it may be. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the, at least the providence of the novel, <laughs> uh, that that's who is drawn to our priest and who our priest tends to encounter. And, but I guess it's because, um, and we uh, we'll talk more about this maybe as we go on, but there is this kind of universal 
infirmity hmm. in man, right? Everyone, all of us are weak because we're all, we're all sick with something very much like what the priest is sick with. Uh, or, you know, his illness is just a, a, a picture of, uh, the universal illness of, of mankind. Would you say um, it's an objective correlative? I would absolutely say it's an objective correlative. <laughs> it so is indeed. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Throw one back. <laughs> that is an objective correlative. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very much so. And I think they uh, the, the novel starts to accumulate uh, objective correlatives as it, it winds sure down it here. Uh, but she's... She's weak in a different way. She has a different kind of weakness. I think you put it really well. Uh, it's not uh, well. Even in our last conversation, right, you talked about uh, Lewis's comments on mother love mm-hmm. right, and how the greatness of one's love uh, can indicate the greatness of the the vice if that love is corrupted or if that love falls. Uh, and she's just a very uh, she's very simple. She's a very simple woman uh, with very simple strengths and loves. Uh, and so her weakness is of a very simple and benign, uh, benign kind. Mm. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, he's, he knows her form and, uh, and to use the, the approach that he has taken with, with some stronger souls, right? Uh, the Comtesse who tells him, I'm stronger than you are. Uh, this is a woman who's not necessarily stronger than he is, and uh, it would break her, perhaps. Hmm. So I have a question for you that I've been pondering. It's just a small little kind of detail from the book, but it's a kind of occupied my thoughts. And it is about the relationship between the girl and Louis. The way yeah. that Louis presents her is the sophisticated, uh, educated woman of the world. She was was running the hospital he was in. And he's so captivated by her strength of character and her, I think he says like her unique mind or something like that, Um, that it was this like marriage of equals with this like strong woman. And, and so that's why he left his vocation as a priest to be with her. Yeah. So. Right. How could you not? Right. So clearly (laughs) when we meet her, we're expecting something else. Right. So my question is, does he actually see her more clearly than we do? Or like, is he commenting on that because there is this quality in her um, that he perceives? um, Or is it that he is just full of pride and folly and wants to justify (laughs) himself? Or could it be both? I don't know. What are your thoughts? Uh. I think I'm glad that this is a question that you had because it connects directly to the question I told you off air. I, I have now on this reading. Okay. Uh, so this, this is perfect. I think, I think if I had to say, I would maybe, I would maybe say it's a little of both. Hmm. Uh, he's, there's definitely a knowing deception on some level. Mm-hmm. Because he he's also trying to keep her away from his yeah, friend. He hides her. Yeah, yeah. And he says, you know, I we're living in sin, and I would, you know, it would be dishonorable of me to just flaunt my kept woman in front of my priest friend. So I'm going to have her stay somewhere else tonight, uh, which is a convenient a convenient excuse or a convenient ruse. Uh, when in reality, maybe he just wants to. Uh, keep his friend who he's been corresponding with about this woman for some time uh, from seeing the reality. But the question remains then, why does he say those things about her? Uh, And yeah, is it, it can't be entirely that he just, uh, that he's so love struck that he sees her this way. He has to, on some level, see her as she is, or he wouldn't hide her. Uh, yeah, and so I think there is an element of pride 
And, uh, but I think too, the, that our priest must see some weakness, uh, obviously, uh, weakness here, but maybe even again of the simpler kind, uh, right? That he, he wants to, he wants to describe and depict his breaking of his oaths and abandonment of his vocation as some sort of high-minded choice yes, and high-minded rebellion when in fact he was just hungry for the simple love of the simple woman. And uh, that's too shameful to him Mm -hmm. uh, to, to admit and he right. can't just he can't just say, "Listen, man, I thought I was cut out for the priesthood, but I was just desperate for the simple love of a simple woman." Right, uh, and so it has to be something far grander. And um, Bernanos lets that decision, I think, remain complicated and ambiguous. Yeah, um, especially yeah. because of the encounter with the girl herself, uh, in which he says, "If I if they had asked my if if I had known, I don't know what I would have told them." Because they yeah. seem to truly need each other. And yet we see right. the folly of Louis as well. So if the vice of the doctor is pride, is that the same vice that Louis has or is it something else? What do you think his sin is? I think I think there must be a kind of, there, obviously there's a kind of lust in mm. there. Uh and he's, but in his pride, he's trying to dress it up as something else. Right. Uh, right. He says, I've had this awakening and she's not a part of that. You know, I just happened to uh, you know, take up with her later, but I've, you know, I've been so enlightened uh, recently. You won't even believe how enlightened I've become. Uh, <laughs> but he, he wants to make himself into some sort of uh, principled individual. And he's just swapped one set of principles for another set of principles. Uh, yeah, he's too proud to call his vice by its name. Uh, so I think it's, it's a little of both. He's definitely a, a, a complicated right. figure, but the, the doctor is too. I mean, he's, uh, right. The, this whole interview with the doctor takes place in his daughter's bedroom right. or his daughter's nursery, That's right. right. which is full of the trappings then, right? It's the, the room is an objective correlative for what the doctor knows he's losing. Hmm. Uh, right. He has, unlike the priest who also has this life that he thought he was going to live, that's being taken away. Uh, he has a wife, he has a family. Uh, and, and so in, in some ways he has more, uh, in this world that's being taken away. And, and so I think the, this whole last, act of the book is very much the that same moment with the locket in the middle of the novel being played out in in their lives that the locket itself was an objective correlative for uh the world as a whole and these different people or the the doctor at least is, is like the priest now having to wrestle with uh that choice being uh forced or that renunciation being forced upon them, hmm. uh, or maybe not, but knowing that there's now a there's now a clock ticking, uh, and that the time that you have left to freely renounce the world is quickly running out. Right. Uh, and so the priest even comes to the point where uh, he's. It's a great. It's a great line near the end where he says. He's reflecting on his diagnosis and he says that he he can't he can't leave the world without tears. Uh, but he's he's definitely come to this point where he's able to renounce the whole of life in the same way that the Comtesse threw the locket into the fire hmm. or renounced this attachment to her son in the knowledge that it would be given back. Uh, right. He says, this is 294 in uh, the, that Capo edition. God might possibly wish my death as some form of example to others, but I would rather have their pity. Why shouldn't I? I've loved men greatly, and I feel this world of living creatures has been so pleasant. I cannot go without tears. Mm. 
Yeah. But he's right. He's not talking in, uh, in terms of, I think it's, it's the passage or the paragraph before he's, he's ready to leave it, but he's made his peace with leaving this world and leaving this life. Uh, but now he's reflecting on how he's not stoic about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a lack of emotion, right? He's, I mean, uh, Jesus wept right? uh, <clears throat> at, at his death and uh, the priest is in. Uh, right. Well, I mean, just the end of this paragraph says Plutarch's heroes both terrify and bore me. If I were to go yeah. to heaven wearing such a mask, I think even my guardian angel would laugh at me. That is right. Like I always think of um augustine calling the romans he said that they had their they had noble vices right um, <laughs> yeah. and and this idea of their their these stoic virtues as somehow being the ultimate and highest form of courage and i really love the priest i think he gives such an antidote for it here in what that section that you're reading and he says if i feel afraid i shall say i am afraid and not be ashamed of it. As soon as our Lord appears before me, may his eyes set me at rest. I loved yeah. that whole section. I've just like yeah. underlined and, you know, and, and partly because <laughs> I'm a classical educator. So I teach and I teach books written that are full of the noble vices, right. That are right. full of this, like call to courage and stoicism. And, and I, I don't, I don't think that's the most human way to live. Like, I think there are some people who are naturally more courageous than others. And, and, but in facing death, I would like to have the courage just to weep and to say that I am afraid and to trust that Christ will guide me into the kingdom without needing me to be stoic. I love that. I love, I just loved it. I loved his tender heart. I was, I just thought that was so moving and so true. Uh, especially I think in his time period, um, and in which all of the West was obsessed with this kind of a, that, you know, this is the greatest generation. That's what we call these, this world war two. And they are, they're so full of courage. Um, and it's incredibly meaningful and I have much to learn from that, but I think in facing death, I would probably be more like the priest. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and I love that Olivier Olivier mentions the Song of Roland, mm. uh, which is this great yeah. medieval French poem. French poem, yeah. And and I I love teaching the Song of Roland. And one of the <laughs> well, one of the things that almost always happens uh, as I read it with students is that they find it silly or laughable at points that you. You weren't meant to find it silly and laughable. And it's usually the moments when these chivalric French knights are displaying intense emotion Hmm. uh, in the midst of or in the face of death. Uh, Not cowardice, but there's there's a good deal of swooning and uh, men uh, hugging and kissing each other. before going to die. Uh, and it is uh, a kind of anti-stoic picture of uh, the the heroic, courageous facing of death and trial. And in that way, it's even kind of an anti-Iliad as uh, Homer can be so apathetic about the way he describes you know, the, the, <laughs> the death and destruction that takes place in that poem. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe there's maybe there's something of the heroic ideal uh even in in Roland there that that the priest is uh representing. Yeah, I like that. Yes. So I I want to talk now that we're at the end, bring up the question of the purpose of the diary again. Yeah. Um and I I yeah. Any any further thoughts on that now that we're at the end, Sean? Anything you want to bring up? Uh oh, oh, yeah, yes. And well, and by way of transition to that question, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Uh I this was my this was my burning question, having read through the novel this time. 
And it has to do with the fact that this is a diary. The diary comes to an end, but the priest, because you can't keep writing a diary after you die, the, the priest ends the story in a different place than the story ends. Yeah. Uh, right. It's just a, an overcomplicated way. Because you can't tell the story of your own death. You can't tell the story of your own death. And so he leaves it. He leaves it one way, right? He's, uh, <clears throat> there was a, there was another sort of echo of, uh, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. There's this uh, going, going to sleep and waking up and the sun rising. That was a great, uh, end of life, beginning of the next life kind of images. Uh, but he's, he's going to sleep and it's a very peaceful moment. And he reflects on grace and suffering and the love of Christ. And that's the end. And then the last few hours of his life are recounted by his priest friend. And in this account, we get again, almost absurdly, the, the fiction <laughs> about his lady friend mm. who... Let's see. He says, this is the last page for me. The lady who shares my life had made a thorough study of medicine and was able to inform me regarding his condition and do all that was required, (laughs) which may not be entirely untrue. Right. She has, uh, right. She was the, she was the orderly basically, uh, essentially like a CNA. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That best. Yeah. Uh right. She, she's she's keeping house in the hospital. And this is his thorough study of medicine. But she has been around the sick and the dying uh, in this work for a very long time. And uh, and much like you know, you know instinctively if you spend much time in or around hospitals, uh, it's not the it's not the physicians who we call doctors, even though Listen, look up the word doctor sometime because I know that the physicians are the most deserving of that title. But uh, all these all these physicians whom we call doctors aren't really the the ones doing the work most of the time. Uh, we have we have close members of our family who are uh, very old and very ill. I uh, just had a baby. Uh, we spend some time in hospitals, and the people you see most of the time are not doctors. They're nurses and orderlies. True. Uh, so it's like they they are the they're the they ones still, doing the work of caring for sick bodies. That's right. Yeah, they are the they are the unsung heroes of, of yep. caring for sick bodies. And so I don't doubt that the that this woman knows what she's about. But we still get him here describing it this way, and then we come to the end. He also he also lets. Uh, drop here his aspirations to be something of a literary you know fellow uh though he has not quite uh <laughs> finished the article he's writing right. for a children's magazine or something uh the youth herald yeah poor little guy uh, oh man the, the so, priest says he is calls it vanity right he's afraid that if yeah. he meets um de torcy he will wound his vanity cruelly yeah right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but then we come to the end, which is, it's a nice scene. Hmm. And it's not out of character for the priest necessarily, but it's it comes as a little bit of a surprise. Some of the things that, that, uh, that Louis describes the priest doing in the final paragraph or so being eager to to receive absolution from this lapsed priest and then the further i don't know what you want to say in encouragement uh, of his so so we so we think his alleged last words does it matter grace is everywhere which is a beautiful line and so now i i feel guilty sort of injecting any kind of cynicism into this moment because it's a it's a beautiful moment. So what uh, is I have, like so what is your 
<clears throat> hesitation my, from being able to enter into it fully on face yeah. value. And, and I, I mean, I, I took it the first time I read this novel, I took it at face value. Uh, and so, and even as we were coming back to the book, I had this last moment and those last lines in my head, grace is everywhere. Um, uh, I have a, I have a, a friend who is an Anglican priest and, uh, um, he and his wife love this novel and it's, uh, you know, they said that it's, this is a line that's that oft repeated in their household and, uh, and with good reason. But reading it through this time, I was paying more attention to to the language and the character of Louis as a narrator. And, and I wonder how much of this is fabricated. I don't, uh, I mean, do you think there's any evidence in the text for that? Well, yeah, a little bit because Louis, himself, Louis comes off so well, uh, right? He... He says something like, well, I heard his confession. May I add, I was able to discharge this duty in a spirit which need leave you with no possible misgivings. Right? This could this could also be a sincerity uh, in which Louis has been moved by the presence of his friend, um, perhaps even... Uh, perhaps even moved by by his friend's willingness to recognize him as a priest. Uh, and perhaps this is some indication, at least in this moment, if not going forward, that he might be moved to uh, return to that vocation. Mm. Uh, Maybe. But I oh, go ahead. Mm. It just, but the cynical reading is just uh, that he has this aggrandized picture of his role in his friend's death mm. right? his truly great friend uh and is sort of doing it up i don't uh, right? i don't the, think the that of... you're necessarily wrong in that like i don't i don't know that if you're right that it takes away from the uh the the weight the spiritual weight of his death yeah like i think right. that one to your point like one of one of the great ah, one of the great beauties of this novel is that there's always like human frailty and divine grace in the same moment right in right? balance yes yeah. like and and that is i think that i i actually do agree with you that this letter displays the vanity that the priest saw in his friend and also the and 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 this is like the tawdry nature of his death like how how small and how great his death was at the same moment like how frail his these people tending to him and yet how like great the grace was that attended him all at the same time and i i think that this letter does display that so i do i do think that you're right that we don't necessarily have to take all of the interpretations of this man um about the priest's death um and I think that this final word, I think doesn't matter. Grace is everywhere. I think these last three sentences we are meant to take without any irony and without any, like when he says, and I am quite sure I recorded them accurately for his voice, though halting, was strangely distinct. Doesn't matter. Grace yeah. is everywhere. I think he died just then. I think that is... I, I I don't think we should impose any cynicism over that moment. I think that is the okay. thesis statement of the book. But I do think that his, I don't know that we have to take everything that he says there. And I think the diary is confessional. Like, I think that it was God's like gift to the priest to have a record of his priesthood yeah. And his final confession straight to God versus straight to this lapsed priest. <laughs> right. And I think that's the spiritual and sacramental purpose of the diary all along. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Uh it it reminded me of and maybe I'm uh, I've confessed to this before, maybe I'm just prone to seeing these kinds of things, but it reminded me a lot of The Power and the Glory. Yeah, I agree. Uh, by Graham Greene. 
where uh, we have, for the entirety of the novel, followed this priest through some particular travail. Uh, but then his death is seen from a distance or or at a remove. Uh, so the, the whiskey priest in The Power and the Glory... Uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> don't know how this novel ends, uh, is martyred. And uh, it's the, there's an open question about just how courageous he's been in in the midst of his martyrdom. Uh, and you you see it through the eyes of distant observers, or maybe even reported secondhand by distant observers. Hmm. Uh and so there's <clears throat> some question about what's authentic, what's not. Uh, and Green enjoys that ambiguity in a way that Bernanos probably doesn't. And so there's far more left up to God. Uh, but here, yeah, just the fact that uh, this that final, final symbol of the priest's humility is that uh, he doesn't get the word. He doesn't get the last word. Uh, and his his death comes through the the mouth of this uh, flawed, flawed narrator, flawed mm-hmm. chronicler. Uh, but that doesn't matter either. Uh, and yeah, his last words could even be a statement on that, the way that his death is being reported. It doesn't matter. Grace is everywhere. Yeah. Well, he didn't get to confess. And that... If I was dying without a confession, it would be hard. Yeah. yeah. So um, I would trust, I would trust, but I would, for my own, for my own soul, I would want to confess. And I, I think that yeah. that is like, it, it speaks, I think, to that, that even the dilemma we just raised of his fear, right? He is afraid and he is trusting that when he dies and sees Christ, Christ will comfort him, but it seems to be that Christ has given him a consolation even in this life as he's facing death. Um, yeah. So there, I guess, to your point, is the function of the novel or the function of the diary, uh, even though it didn't start out that way, has become uh, gradually a prayer to God, which now finally serves as this is confession to God. Right. Which we have a bit of foreshadowing of that with the Comtesse, right? Because she right. doesn't get a formal confession either. Yes. Um, and, and, and the priest is confident. Um, and so I think that maybe that has also like it all, it ties together like that his confidence yeah. in, in the Comtesse's good death, then I think provides maybe a bit of consolation for his own. It's the only time in the book that this this section this tiny little epilogue after his death is the only time in the book that we're not actually behind his eyes and we don't know right. what he's thinking and feeling and praying <laughs> and wrestling with uh and and so we have to kind of guess based on what he's given us before and right so i i think that because the contest did not get a formal confession, but she had a good death. And he tells us that the novel tells us that, that then we can trust that for the priest. I think that's right. Especially with sort of the the parallel structure and the doubling that's going on with the Mm -hmm. first half of the novel and the second half of the novel. Uh, I think that's, I think that's fair. Yeah. So does the priest, I mean, I think the answer to this is obvious, but I want, like, does the priest have a good death? Oh yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's an easy one. Yeah, uh, I think it's, it an, it's an unassuming kind of death, right? Uh, right in this, it's a little hovel, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think that's right. Yeah, and it's it's largely a good death because he's prepared for it. Yeah, uh, right. He, he even tells the doctor, "You practice by dying a little bit every day." Yeah, and uh, and he's even though his his tenure was short and his life ultimately was short. Uh, we see that he's, he's does that pretty faithfully throughout. Yeah. I've um, recently joined our parish burial committee. So we prepare mm-hmm. bodies for burial and it is a powerful ministry. Like I, yeah. Um, 
and that set for the church fathers and mystics and theologians throughout the Christian, throughout the ages of Christendom have always said, remember your death, memento mori, like remember your death. And we've lost that a bit. Yeah, We have to Mm -hmm. actually try. It's not preached from the pulpit across the West anymore. (laughs) Um, Right. Well, and we, and we hide our, we hide our dead. Right. Uh, Churches don't have, have graveyards uh, the way that they used to, right? You'd have to walk through the the deceased members of your congregation to get to church. I have Uh, many thoughts on this lately. We We outsource death to secular institutions and we don't know any other way. And so it's not that I am condemning that, but I think we can bring back a Christian death, a Christian burial, like a -hmm. Christian ending to our lives, as we say in the, in the litany of the church. And that is, I kept thinking about that. Um, And I was grateful, very grateful for the priest in the novel that Louise girl, like the late that she was there. Mm-hmm. Because she had a kindness to her and she knew about bodies and she was able to provide some physical consolation to him in his last day. Uh, and that was yeah. another grace, right? Grace is everywhere. And again, it's like that grace mingled with human frailty because she ought not to be there in a moral sense. Uh, yeah. And and yet. I'm so glad she was. And so the novel, I think, ends with a paradox on multiple levels. Uh, Just, you know, it kind of dies that it has, the novel itself like dies as it has lived, (laughs) just like the priestess. Um, And I just thought that was very beautiful and kind of unfinished and messy in a also very, um, like, beautiful and non-messy. It was like messy, but not messy all at the same time. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like it didn't end with a neat little bow, but it did bring the threads together. Exactly. Yeah, it was it was a well, it seemed, I don't know, it seemed untidy when you look up close, mm-hmm. but it's, it was well architectured. Yeah, very beautiful. Well, any any final thoughts before we end for the day, Sean? I think that's a, a good place to stop. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, we will be back next week with our Q&A. Once you are, you know, I guess we'll be posting this in a couple of days. And once you get there, I think Monday this goes up and we'll post a Q&A Monday and you can post your questions. Uh, And I anticipate we'll have several questions and comments on this really uh, that might stump us a little bit because this is a very complex novel and we barely scratched the surface. So if there's something we haven't (laughs) discussed that you want to bring up for us to talk about um, or have any questions or alternate theories. Uh, this was just an incredibly rich novel. So please post your questions. Uh, Sean and I and David will be recording our first episode of Paralandra also. So we're moving on in the Ransom Trilogy. Uh, I think across the board, this is all three of our favorites. Is that right, Sean? This is I, yours favorite. I, for me, easily. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um so uh, this is going to be a really, really good discussion. I can't wait to start that. So yeah, we will also have that posted up for you next week. Uh, and anything else, Sean? Uh, and then our next book on the main show is The Optimist Daughter. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Eudora Welty. Yep. yep, which I, there's good old Southern literature. So uh, oh, yeah. get us all prepared for our upcoming retreat. Go ahead and sign up for the retreat. If you are not uh, on the Substack, um, if you're not a Substack subscriber and you want access to uh, our conversation about Paralandra and then the other books that we've read in the past, we just finished out of the Silent Planet on the Ransom Trilogy, then please head over to www.closereads.substack.com where you can access great content um, and behind the scenes conversations and all those kinds of things. And over here on the flagship show, we're going on with uh, our Q&A on diary and we will be up soon with the optimist daughter. And that is that. Also, again, post your congratulations to Tim. Urge him to post pictures of his beautiful little Arden Anne. We need to see more of her. Uh, and <laughs> I'm also hoping that our Joe Coast readers, um, who's our, 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 
fan page. We have no idea what goes on there. And we think <laughs> it's a lot of hijinks. Uh, they, we're hoping that they are starting a petition to, um, uh, carry on our master plan of setting up little Arden with one of your sons, Sean. And I, creating I could a be close a lot reads worse. Dynasty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Power couple. That's right. Um, so, all right. Well, that's all for today. For David Kern in absentia, uh, for Sean Johnson, I'm Heidi White. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week and happy reading. <laughs>